0: Otherwise, with Nancy Richards. Thanks very much, Sile. Well, Otherwise, it is with me, Nancy Richards, also with Hazel McUdeny and Derek Fordyce. And what we have on the show today, we're going to be talking to a couple of young graduates. uh, Beatrice Saladayi from Zimbabwe and Bolivia Jeremiah from Botswana. And they're both from a program that was put together by uh, an organization called SAF AIDS, Urging young women to take control of and be advocates for their own sexual and reproductive rights, we'll be hearing about how they have uh, produced uh, projects. Then, after 1:30, signs of child abuse. Well, how do you actually know if a child is being abused? And if you do know or you suspect it, what if anything do you do? How do you intervene? I'm going to be talking to Marita van She's a manager at the Abraham Creel Childcare Facility in Johannesburg, and also to Professor Shonaz Matthews. She's from the Child Institute here in Cape Town. And if you'd like to call at any stage, you're welcome 0892 10 Well, what's news? Well, we were talking, you might remember, on the show yesterday about what constitutes visionary leadership. Well, on uh, leaders that are visionary or not, as the case may be, certainly... Here in Cape Town, uh, our former president, Nelson Mandela, is being celebrated on the 11, story- on 11 stories of the Civic Center here in Cape Town. There's an extraordinary piece of artwork. Um, from a distance, you can't quite see it, but looking now at a picture of a close-up, it's more than just uh, our very own Madiba. There's all sorts of iconic symbols of Cape Town in it, and it's a project. It's just one of the projects for this year, uh, together with an exhibition that will honor the life of Madiba. It's apparently forty two metres high and seventeen meters wide and it's a, it's been put together by Lindsay Levendah, a Cape Tonian, now living in Canada. Also by Albie Collins and Alberic Former. Well as you drive past on, on the uh, on the suburb side of the Civic Centre, do look up and have a look at this wonderful picture. It looks like a, a huge stained glass window. It's a magnificent piece. And on leaders that may not be quite so visionary, former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi has been sentenced to jail for seven years for having paid for sex with a minor, though the former teenage nightclub dancer Karima El Maruch, uh, the lady in question, has denied having had sex with him. The panel of judges, though, three women, have also convicted him of abuse of office by arranging to have El Maruch uh, released from custody after she was detained for theft. But it looks like the former PM will probably never spend any time at all in jail, but the point of telling you this story is that it really seems to send out a message that men in power can do what they like with women and get away with it. Talking of which, staying abroad since the very public playful tiff in a restaurant with husband Charles Saatchi, Nigella Lawson has apparently not been back to the family home and is no longer wearing her wedding ring, and there are rumours of divorce. Also staying abroad in the States for US-born singer Puff Johnson, joy and tragedy have often been bedfellows. So I read, from releasing a hit album at the age of 21 to having to bury her fiancé, music producer Kip Collins in 2007, Although she'd been diagnosed with uh, cervical or cervical cancer, uh, Puff Johnson moved to South Africa in 2008 where she was responding to treatment, but sadly there came a time when the treatment just wasn't working. She returned to the States where she had subsequently died. Well, they say when it's your time, it's your time, but here another message is that all of us women need to get tested against this very virulent form of cancer with regular checkups and tests. And just also on things that can harm you, interesting to read in the Cape Times that the founder of the Dakar Fashion Week in Senegal, known as Adama Paris, has banned any of the models taking part from using skin lightening products. A local paper there claims that 60% of women in Senegal use these products, and as a result, many have blotches of discolored skin on their arms and faces. But um, so says a dermatologist, it's not just their self-esteem that's at stake with this discoloring. She also says that the corticosteroids in the creams are absorbed into the bloodstream and can cause serious risk to the heart and, in some cases, also skin cancer. So skin creams, skin lightening creams, something we should really look into right here on Otherwise. As just asked you back home, DA Parliamentary Leader Lindiwe Mazibuko had her mother campaigning with her yesterday. June Rose Mazibuko was celebrating her birthday, but she uh, advised her daughter to remain firm against character assassination from political enemies. And she said that she could not stand listening to her daughter's integrity being impugned by personal insults. Nice to have your mother on your side. You're listening to Otherwise. Stay with us.
1: Otherwise, on SAFM.
0: Well, some while ago on the show here on Otherwise, we heard about a graduation ceremony from Saffaids through which nine remarkable young women had completed their young women's leadership training, training which focuses on empowering young women to serve as advocates, enhancing their knowledge and skills to reclaim their sexual and reproductive health and rights and build innovative thinking as a basis for nurturing young women, advocates who are conversant, passionate, and devoted to amplify the voices of young people on all of these issues. So well, we were keen to hear some of the graduate stories. So we're starting off, we're going to be talking to Bolivia Jeremiah. She's in Botswana. But first, Beatrice Savadai. She's in Zimbabwe, and we have her on the line. Hi, Beatrice.
2: Hello, how are you? I'm
0: very well, thank you very much. So you're back home. Did you undergo this training here in Cape Ta- here in South Africa? Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Did you undergo the training, the training that you did with SAFAID, the Young Women's Leadership Training, here in South Africa?
2: Yes, I did uh, since 2011. It was a two-year program that got to build a cadre of young women leaders from the Southern African region who are able to become change makers within their community and at a global level. So I was part of the Young Women Leadership program that was organized by Subway.
0: Okay. Why did they choose you, Beatrice? Were, were you chosen out of many?
2: Yes. Um, there were a lot of applicants who applied to be part of this program, and we underwent a very rigorous selection process where we were interviewed by um, a panel of five people, some from Grassa Marshall, from OSISA, and other organizations within Zimbabwe and their as well. Then I was selected to be as one of the nine young women leaders to be part of the program.
0: At what stage were you in your career when you were chosen?
2: I was working for um, an, an, a non-governmental organization that works with students <coughs> in social institutions. Um, that's when I applied to be part of the program. But I felt that um, what the program was offering was um, very important in in building me and making me an all-rounded leader because uh, we ended up uh, going for internships in different organizations. For example, I went to one which was working on gender budgeting, which is something that um, I wasn't familiar with. So I felt that um, I had to be part of this program.
0: Okay, yes. so you, you recognized that this was going to grow you in just the right yes, way. I was
2: going to develop me to become a, a very competent and all-rounded leader.
0: Uh, at the end of which, though something was going to be expected of you, you weren't just going to get this good uh, this this training and then go back into your same situation. What was expected of you?
2: Firstly, they were expecting me to become a, a leader who is self-aware, uh, somebody who can transform our communities. Um, so we were expected also to do, like, a community project, and I was on a community project with sex workers in Zimbabwe, and I was trying to look at issues of HIV as you, maybe a way that much as um, uh, HIV prevalence in most countries maybe is going down, but in key populations it's actually going high as they are marginalized and stigmatized and as less uh, focus is put on them. So I, I live in a red light zone, uh, the avenues in Zimbabwe, and I experience, in a way, the challenges that sex workers face. So I felt it was um, a good project for me to do and try and bring it, bring it out to the world that we really need to uh, focus on this group of people in a non-stigmatizing way, in a non discriminatory way to address issues um, that we are facing as a population.
0: I think that you could be the one who put yourself in some danger undergoing this project. Are you? Are you? I think uh, we were hearing. Did you? Did you um, pose as one of the prostitutes yourself? One yes, of the sex I did. Mm.
2: I felt that um, if I just hear the stories without actually getting to experience the challenges that they face, I wouldn't have a clear picture of the of the actual challenges that they go through, the victimisation from clients and all. So, as part of, the, of doing, our, I did a documentary on sex work in Zimbabwe, and uh, at the end of it, I also posed as a sex worker. I, I, I stood with um, three sex workers and explained to them that I was doing a documentary. So, I wanted to find out how they interact, their powers of negotiating for safer sex with a client, and stuff like that.
0: And how how does that happen? I imagine that must be. One of, I imagine there are many difficult uh, difficult things you have to do as a sex worker, but how did they how did that negotiation process go?
2: It was you find that um most of the times because the one with the money like the old adage says that he who pays the piper calls the tune, mm. is their power to negotiate for safer sex are compromised because they are looking for money from somebody who has it, and that person who has the money dictates sort of, in a way, what needs to be done. Like, the client I talked to, um, he wanted to have unprotected sex with me, and um, he wanted me to take uh, take him to um, his residence. And you find from the discussions that I was having with uh, some of the sex workers, is the issue that they also get victimized when they go go to a client's house. And... um, because this guy is the one who was offering money, I felt, in a way, disempowered, and I actually got to understand the challenges or the risk that these young women, the sex workers, are, go through when they're trying to get that much-needed dollar.
0: I believe you managed to extricate yourself before you had to undergo any of I this, did. and heaven only knows how you did. I, did. I, I
2: had, what, um, what did you do? I people around me who hmm. were also in cars, so it was just negotiating with him and all. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: It, and the negotiation process, I mean, this is something that sex workers need to need to be able to take control of if they are continuing their profession. I, if you say no, mm-hmm. it's absolutely not happening, you know, unless we use protection, is yes. that it? Is that no job, no deal?
2: It's quite tricky because um, from the discussions that I had with sex workers, they were saying that much as they are aware of the... Risk involved in getting into, like engaging in unprotected sex. At times, because of the poverty that they are facing, they are forced to do it um, without using protection. And some of them actually confess that um, they all share that they are HIV positive. And they inform their clients that I'm HIV positive, but some clients just say, it's okay. I just want to sleep with you without a condom. So you find that. the broader picture are issues of good governance and issues of poverty. If we don't break the cycle of poverty, you find that women will always find themselves at risk of being infected with HIV. Here's a client who's offering you $100 for, say, the whole night, which you normally charge to, do, to have unprotected sex, which you normally charge, say, uh, $20. Yeah. They are, in a way, forced to compromise and accept the $100, um, this also came out in the documentary that, that I did that it's because of poverty that they end up um, engaging in unprotected sex, much as they know they are aware of the consequences that come with doing that. Yeah, sure. So we need to address these important issues, issues of poverty. And um, also we, we tried to explore the issue of decriminalization. And they were saying that um, when they are arrested by police officers, they use the con- if they find a condom on you it's evidence that you're actually a sex worker so the, it's hard for a sex worker to move around with a condom yeah then so if you it do then it compromises if you don't. Mm-hmm. even if they want to negotiate when you don't have the condom it's difficult yeah, mm-hmm. yeah sure. what
0: message did you what was a sort of primary message that you wanted to get acro- across in your documentary
2: uh, the primary message was that we Uh, As a people, as communities, as individuals, as as nations, we need to really reflect and really look at issues of HIV infection, especially in key populations. And also be a bit daring and explore issues of decriminalization and ensure that there is access to health services and commodities by key populations. Because I feel in a way we are sitting on a time bomb where we're ignoring these infections and reinfections that are happening within uh, these key populations, yet the clients who are coming to have sex with these um, sex workers, uh, family members, church leaders, you name it, and they're going back to their families after having unprotected sex with a sex worker who is HIV positive. And they are also putting their wife, their partner, at risk when they go back home. So we really need to address um, issues of access to healthcare services, issues of poverty, and ensure that if sex workers are operating, they are doing their um, work in um, an environment that's safe where they are not... Um, Victims of violence from law enforcing agents where they can negotiate for safer sex because they know if they move around with a condom, they're not going to be um, arrested. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very briefly, Beatrice, who do you hope will see your documentary?
2: I hope I'm going to be able to share with. Uh, a lot of development partners as well as um, during international conferences such as um, ICASA that's going to be in South Africa so that um, these people in a way and as well as government because the government plays a critical role in ensuring uh, that their people uh, have access to basic commodities and stuff like that. Their welfare is well catered for. So if we are ignoring this community and they have no access to services, like I said, we're sitting on a time bomb and we're going to have um, a boom again of HIV infections, we need to look into this uh, population. And also to development funders, I'm hoping they're going to invest more because if you, if you are aware, most of funding has shifted from HIV prevention and stuff like that uh, to issues like climate change and other emerging issues, yet we still have a lot of work that needs to be done in ensuring that we secure the gains and strides that we've made and ensuring that there's a decline in HIV in our country.
0: Yes, indeed. So I'm
2: hoping there's going to be more funding towards key populations like sex workers.
0: Beatrice, very best of luck, and and may your documentary be seen by all of those who need to be seeing it. Beatrice Sabadier, thank you. Good luck. Thank you very much. Beatrice is one of the graduates from the SAFAIDS uh, program, the Young Women's Leadership uh, Training Program, and we will put up those uh, details on our Facebook page. I think it's uh, safaids.org.za or maybe .co.za, but, well, it's it's .net. It's www.safaids.net, safaids.net. safaids.net. Here's to the students who stood up to the might of an unjust system. The students who put aside their fear to march for the right to better education. Here's to the young men and women who fought and died for our freedom. Here's to millions of young South Africans who battle new challenges every day. Who overcome poverty and unemployment so they can reach their potential. Here's to the youth of South Africa. Here's to the future of South Africa. The SABC proudly salutes our youth this month.
3: The National Arts Festival in Grahamstown runs from the 27th of June to the 7th of July. The biggest festival on the continent has 3,000 performances, including the best theatre, hottest jazz, awesome dance, great music, lectures, comedy, film, performance art, exhibitions and much more. It's the place to be this winter. Book now at CompuTicket. Visit us online at www.nationalartsfestival.co.za The National Arts Festival, 11 Days of Amazing, in partnership with SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Otherwise, on SAFM.
0: Yes, bringing you women here on South Africa's news and information leader and talking there to one very interesting young lady, uh, young part of uh, the, one of the graduates from the Young Women's Leadership Training by SAFEDS. Well, we have another one of the graduates on the line. She's Bolivia Jeremiah, and she's from Botswana. Uh, hi, Bolivia. Hello. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Great, great. Okay, Bolivia, tell us a little bit. We, we heard there from um, one, of your, uh, one of your co-graduates there. Um, mm-hmm. um, sorry, I've already forgotten her name, Beatrice. <laughs> Beatrice. Um, yes, Beatrice, what she yeah. was doing. And tell me about the project that you undertook.
1: Uh, my project is called Kia okay. Hubulela. It's a uh, statement that means I'm going to tell. And it's basically a campaign against delayed sexual abuse disclosure. And it's a campaign that I, a project that is uh, centered around the personal experience of sexual abuse. I've myself experienced um, rape. And so I wanted to make the public aware that. Rape exists, and after that, you find that a lot of young girls and young women just become silent. And the silencing part of it, I was basically looking at the socialization that we as young women, when we grow up in our family structures, we are taught. So it's a behavior that we learn. We are taught to keep uh, certain issues to ourselves because we don't want to break the the family integrity. We don't want to shame our family. And it also goes back to other systems, such as the school environment, whereby when children want to report certain issues, they're told to keep quiet because they're forefront or they're they're, they're just acting up. So you find that as children, we grow up with this behavior that when something happens to you, you just keep it to yourself. Mm-hmm. And when one experiences abuse, it also happens. The same thing happens. You keep quiet because, one, you fear that the society is going to say you're the one who has created that. You call it upon yourself. Or the the, the, the person who does that to you will tell you that they'll kill you. So there are just a lot of issues that surround uh, the silencing. And I just wanted people to realize that there are effects that come with the silencing. For example, there are issues of psychiatric morbidity, post-traumatic stress disorders, depression. We have parasuicide, which can later lead on to suicide, unplanned pregnancies, unsafe abortions. That may lead to maternal and child mortality. And then there are those issues of untreated STIs, which may lead to... Uh, fertility complications. So these are some of the things that I wanted the public to be aware of so that they train their children when they are young to report cases. You know, it it takes courage and so it has to be taught.
0: Yes, gosh, A, a young woman who is in that situation, she's sort of between the devil and the deep blue sea. I mean, I hear about the impact of silence, all the things you described there. But equally, yeah. she's not wrong. If she if she does own up to it, then she is. Chances are, she is going to be stigmatized. Chances yeah. are, she is going to get into trouble with the perpetrator. How yeah. do you how do you recommend she handles that?
1: Yeah, what what I recommend is that we as parents, because you see, young girls and young children are very much close to their parents, and so. If Parents take the initiative to protect their children and to train their children to be more assertive and to help the children identify certain behaviors that may lead to such a practice or such a very unfortunate experience. That will help them to be able to to speak out and to report. And then one of the things that I strongly recommended was looking into the criminal justice system to say that I may have the, the strength to go to the police station to report, but when I get there, I get mixed reactions. You know, the, the, the environment is not so welcoming. All the police will be gay asking me what is happening, what happened, why did I allow it to happen, mm-hmm. or why did I go at night, you know, such issues. So I was looking at the criminal justice system to see how conducive is it to foster and mature young people in reporting. Because I may be assertive, but if the environment is not nurturing, then I may fail to continue and uh, seek justice. And so what is currently happening in my country, which I believe I had an influence in it, is the introduction of the gender referral system, whereby in every police station there will be somebody who has been trained to handle such sensitive issues, and so having a very private uh, room where you feel very comfortable. And what we are currently doing right now, because I'm involved with a movement called the and we just started establishing it recently, uh, is that we want to ensure that such systems that are put in place are implemented. It's not just on paper, but they are implemented and they are monitored and evaluated. And with my project, what I did with the young girls, with the young women, is that I went to a certain district and then I interviewed them. We had a a very relaxed session. And then we had an opportunity to watch a movie called For Colored Girls. I believe a lot of people know the movie. Mm. It's a Tyler Perry movie. Yeah. And from there on, the idea was not just to enjoy the movie, but to come up with certain elements that are related to sexual and reproductive health as well as gender issues that may lead to a young uh, person falling prey or being victimized, you know, being sexually abused. And we did pick a lot of issues. And what was surprising was that most of the young women that I gathered, I did not know whether they were abused or not. I just took just 30... Um, between twenty and thirty young women, and then we just gathered in a room without knowing. But when we just, when we started discussing about the issues, a lot of them told me that you know what I have experienced this, but nobody knows sure. about this.
0: Olivia, pre- presumably your project is ongoing and I'm going to ask Hazel to take the details of it so that if anybody yes. would like to know a little bit more after the mm-hmm. news headlines, I can give out the, the website and how people can find out more. But it sounds like you've really got your finger on the pulse there. Yeah. And very best of luck. I, I hope uh, you know, your work continues to make a difference and an impact as it certainly needs to. Olivia, Jeremiah, you. thank you very much. Thank you. Well, how interesting. Two very, very strong projects by young women. They're part of the Safaids project, uh, www.safaids.net, Safaids.net. But we'll be finding out a little bit more about Bolivia's details of her project just uh, in a minute. But Right now, it's 1.30 time for the news headlines with Ursula. Thanks very much to But right now. You're listening to Otherwise Talking Women and uh, interesting to hear, really wonderful to hear about these young women who've achieved so much in terms of breaking down barriers to all the things that happen to young women and certainly uh, they seem to be taking control right there in terms of uh, sexual and reproductive rights and just knowing what the right thing to do is. We'll give you the details uh, in just a minute, if we can, of that second project there. But next... Well, you know, some young women and some young men may never achieve anything great in their lives simply because their self-esteem may be just way too badly damaged to ever recover as a result of abuse. Here's this story, for instance. Rindy was a young child entering the child welfare system because she was in need of protection. Her grandfather, the person who was supposed to spoil her with healthy hugs, the occasional sweet and lots of stories about long, long ago, took her childhood from her through his inappropriate sexual actions. During a projection technique done by her social worker, Rindy had to identify herself in a specific picture. And instead of choosing one of the two possible girls in the picture, she chose the picture of the toilet. That, she said, is me. She's 13 years old today, and it took a few years for that picture of herself to develop in Rindy's mind. Well, what a, what a sad, sad story. We have two women on the line who are going to share with us ideas, the thoughts about how to recognize the fact when a child is being abused. And if you do feel that that child is being being abused, what, if anything, there is that you can really or should be doing about it? So we're going to be talking to Professor Shanaz Matthews in a minute. She's a, a specialist in this field with the Child's Institute in, in Cape Town. But first, we're going to talk to Marita Van Sale. She's the manager of the Abraham Creole Childcare Care Facility in Johannesburg. Hi, Marita. Good afternoon, uh, Nancy. Thank you very much. And that's th- that piece that I just read was from an article that you read, which is full of shocking, shocking statistics, not just that particular uh, anecdote there, yes. but also the physical indicators. You say that, you know, there are two ways of knowing if a child has been abused. One is through their actions, and the other one is f- through their physical appearance. Yes. Why did you decide to write this article? Was it to alert
4: us all to what's going on around us? Yes. Um, two reasons, the one is that uh, in our organization here in Johannesburg, we are looking after children in need of care, children that has been removed from their parents because of abuse. We have about um, 300 children in residential care and most of them have been abused, either physically or sexually, and then we also cater for children in the communities. And we see abuse there. And then it was also Child uh, Protection Week, I think, in the end of May. And with that in mind, um, we decided to write the article and see if we can place it somewhere so that people can be aware and pledge together with us to save a child. Because I really think that it's the responsibility of the whole community to look after our
0: children. Yeah, and in some cases, I mean, children are just not going to disclose it themselves. And we were talking earlier to a young woman who was saying that very often young women don't don't, uh, disclose rape because they're afraid of what might happen to them with the perpetrator. They're afraid of what people might say about them. And I imagine it's the same with whatever sort of abuse it may happen to a child. And from your article, I read that uh, 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 it's estimated that a child is raped in South Africa every three minutes that's yes. a child is raped yes, uh, that never mind what other sort of abuse may be happening to that yes. child yes. so we could all be surrounded by children, if, if we are how do we really know I mean it's very difficult to intervene if you're not absolutely sure
4: yes, um, people in um, circumstances where they see children on a regular basis are the people that uh, I'm pleading to, to look after uh, to look out for signs of abuse and by that I mean um, teachers uh, people in the medical profession um, childcare workers uh, youth workers people who see a child on a daily basis can uh, become aware that this child has changed perhaps or see the physical indicators I've mentioned in my article that um if they are physical signs and you put it together with behavioral indicators and the emotional state of a child, then you can become uh, worried about possible abuse uh, and then you should sp- speak out.
0: We also have on the line Professor Shanaz Matthews. Hi Shanaz, are you with us?
4: Hi, good afternoon to you Nancy and to the listeners. Thanks,
0: thanks very much. The Children's Institute, what, in what way do you work with child abuse? Do you also take the children in or is your is your role more of an educational one?
4: Well, the Children's Institute predominantly we do research and policy research. So we would do research to inform policy and practice. So I work not directly with children per se, but my history, I, um, I put a background as a social worker and I started off my career working with child sexual assault at the children's hospital. I've got quite extensive experience of doing both clinical work with children as well as doing research to inform us around practices, um, to improve practice models as well as policy.
0: Yes, so policy, we need to have policies in place, but I suppose we need sort of whistleblowers going back to what Marietta was saying here. We need to have people bring it to the attention because the, uh, the policy makers can't be everywhere.
4: Yeah, um, Marie- I, yeah What yeah. I wanted to say, Nancy, mm-hmm. and you know, what, what the previous speaker was talking about, um, I conducted some research in the Western Cape here. Where we were looking at um, what children want from services. So after they've disclosed sexual assault, um, you know, what are the experiences with service, services, both from children as well as caregivers' perspectives. And what we found is very interesting because we also started looking at what symptoms, you know, symptomatology children were having. And very, for us, and, and this is a huge concern, is even when children have disclosed and they go to services, the initial rate of post-traumatic stress disorder is about 70%. That reduces to just under half of children who've been sexually abused and it remains at that level of about forty five percent for symptom post traumatic stress disorder about a year after disclosure. And that's phenomenally high. Even when a child accesses the service, that those the symptoms still remain high because what we're talking about here then is the children these children have disclosed abuse, sexual assault and have been to a service, but whether in fact they're continuing going to services is part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so what we are finding is that children are high levels of emotional distress out in communities, and how families and, and communities are managing it, itself is a concern.
0: Yeah, gosh. So it remains, even after they've disclosed, it remains at 45%. Yeah, 45%. And if they don't disclose, I suppose it's... it's Probably going to continue getting worse and worse yeah, throughout their Yeah, and, and lives. that
4: is long-term implications for for the child's mental health as they become an adult, as well as the ability to be available as a parent. Which we've seen with the study where parents who themselves have been abused, um, particularly sexually abused, are unable to be emotionally available to the child after the, the, the disclosure. So, so it, it has a ripple effect and long-term psychological impact. Yes, I think I remember hearing you say at a talk
0: that actually it's very often um, it's only after a child has disclosed that they are being abused that a woman will actually disclose mm-hmm. her own mm-hmm. uh, her own history of abuse, which is a very very scary and cyclical sort of problem. Yeah. Maria, I'd like to come back to you. And some yes. of you the, there's a long list. Of ways in which you can spot uh, that a child is um, that a child is being abused. I mean, there are the obvious ones, the physical ones, yes. where, whereby you might see uh, you might see a bruise that's in the shape of a, of a belt or a buckle or a rope or something like that. Yes. The physical ones, I suppose, are obvious. But talk us through some of the ones that are um, manifest in the child's behaviour.
4: Yes. Um, the most uh, obvious behaviour is when a child may disclose it by telling the a story, but say it's happening to a friend. Uh, and then behaviours like inappropriate sexual activities can be an indication of sexual abuse. If a child of, say, seven, six years old is showing sexual actions that they are not supposed to know about, you can become aware of that. Uh, excessive masturbation uh, and a child forcing another child to be part of sexual activities. Um, and then behavior like regression, when they suddenly start to wet their beds in older children. So that is your more obvious uh, behavioral uh, activities, but the more, the more subtle ones, uh, if you couple that together with your physical indicators, uh, you can become worried. It's behavior like the inability to relate to children from your same age, uh, again, regressive behaviors such as bed-wetting and thumb-sucking, depression, aggression, fear towards adults. Sometimes you can see that a child, uh, a female child, a little girl, is very scared of a male adult. Um, sometimes a child may act much older and wiser than his own age. Um, the sudden changes in behavior, the sudden changes in school attendances. And uh, performances that they stop achieving well at school, avoidance of certain people or places, and uh, a telltale sign is when they are at school and says they don't want to go home. They will play at school until it gets the hook. Yeah,
0: gosh. Yeah, well, if any of this is uh, ringing a bell for you and you know of children, if maybe you're a teacher or you're surrounded by children one way or another, and any of this is ringing a bell, I suppose the thing to do is something about it. Um, incidentally, www.abrahamcreel.co.za is where Marita is talking from, abrahamcreel.co.za. Question for both of you. you. Um, Okay, say say some of these uh, symptoms have been recognized, so say you're a teacher or or a neighbor even, Mm, what do you do? Marita, let's start with you.
4: I would say that you should uh, write down everything that you have been observed, uh, that you've observed, uh, and try to identify um, the name, if you know the name or the street address or the home or the school, uh, that you record all your physical and behavioral signs uh, that causes you to suspect abuse, uh, possibly where uh, that you can put on the dates, and then you should phone your local child care organization. Uh, you will get the telephone numbers there if you um, look at the website of the Department of Social Development, or you can call Childline, uh, and you can give the number if you want to. Nancy, can I give the yes, number? Yes, yes, yes. It's... and uh, you can report the abuse. You can do it anonymously. You don't have to say your name. The most important thing is that you should give as much detailed information as possible. (laughs)
0: Presumably you shouldn't intervene yourself directly, no, which, no, which would definitely. be quite the wrong thing. Yes. Shinoz, from, from the Child Institute's point of view, uh, you know, we need to do as much as we possibly can to prevent it happening in the first place. But if you do recognize it, from your point of view, what should a person do?
4: Well, I think it's important to also recognize that certain categories of people have reporting obligations in terms of the Children's Act. Mm. So if you a medical doctor, a nurse, a teacher, um, you are obligated by law to report these cases. So if there is a suspicion, as Marita says, that you've got to document why you're suspecting abuse, but you're also legally obligated to be reporting such cases. Um, I think the difficulty is when you're a concerned neighbour or a friend of the families that you know you, you feel you don't want to interfere. Yes. But once you have the concern that you are worried about the child, um, I think it's important that you look at what avenues there are. So as Marita had indicated, you have your social development or child line that you could be calling. But there are other avenues as well. For instance, if you're living in a community and the, and the child's known to the community health clinic, for instance, and um, you, you could be saying to the clinic sister that I am worried that they're able to watch out. And some of the, the, the facilities also have social workers attached to them that could do a home visit and could be investigating. So it depends entirely on the community that you're based in. Um, you could also flag it with a school teacher if you are concerned because the teacher might have more information. So there are many ways that you... you but, but I think the first step is that you should be recognising that we all have a responsibility, that there's, if there's anything worrying... So if the mother's your friend and you know she's going through a bad depression, and you're worried about her ability to take care of the child, or you've seen that it's impacted on the child negatively. That in itself, you know, the emotional side, often we don't recognize emotional abuse, but it has as much damaging effect as a physical abuse Mm -hmm. has. And therefore we've got to also recognize that there are different categories of abuse. And emotional abuse isn't less harmful than physical
0: abuse.
4: So so I think it's very important that we recognize that there are different forms of abuse and symptoms could be very different.
0: I I suppose I want to say to you both that, you know, it would be a dangerous thing unless you're fully equipped to try and encourage the child to talk. But, you know, it seems that a child in a situation like this would just need a whole lot of love. Is it appropriate to show them love and affection or is that just exacerbating the situation? Very, very briefly.
4: I would say that if you are in any uh, situation where you may give support to the child, you should do that. Uh, The child feels, uh, any child feels very unsafe when exposed to sexual abuse and Mm -hmm. they crave a safe place. So if
0: you can provide that, then it's fine. Do it. Yeah, Marita Fonseil, thank you so much, and thank you for your article, www.abrahamcreel.co.za, and if you'd like to call Childline, once again, 8 triple 555 or 555 And uh, very lastly, very briefly, uh, Shanaz, you, your feeling, can people contact the Institute if they'd like more advice? Yes,
4: um, they can definitely make contact with us at the Institute, and as I say, we do... Um, policy research and also have legal experts as part of our team so if there's any legal advice you need you could phone us and And our contact number is 021-689-5404.
0: Okay I'm going to repeat that. Shanaz Matthews professor at the Children's Institute thank you very much as well and if you'd like uh, to get in touch with them 021-689-5404. You're listening to Otherwise next up it's Sharp Shop the Children's Programme. Shop shop children's program on SAFM with Leon Fischer.
1: And here's shop shop, yes shop shop. Shop
0: shop.
3: Bongani's secret by Francis Aaron. Bongani stopped in his tracks. He could hear a strange voice singing from across the river. Who could it be he wondered? His cousins Busi and Sapiwe had recently left for school across the river and times became lonely and rather dull. He hadn't had a chance to miss them much, though. Certainly not since his uncle found him daydreaming under the banana tree a day after their departure. Hawu Bongani, what's this? At your age I was ploughing the fields of Mfango. Aunt Gladys could do with your help. In fact, I was just thinking of coming to find you, and here you are, and doing nothing as well. Go and help your aunt pick special grasses for weaving." And so it was that every morning Bongani found himself in the hills above his parents' kraal, in the Izzelwini Valley, Valley of the Heavens. It all started with an early wake-up call from his sister Tandi on her way out to the big house on the other side of the river where she was employed. Here he was a month later, picking at the thick mass of grass that was to be dyed by the ladies working with his ma. Bongani turned towards a strange sound of singing and dropped his sack. As if by magic, a gentle wind blew and seemed to whisk him along and down the grassy slope which led him to the banks of a small river. As if in a daze, Pongani found himself stone-hopping up the river. Water glistened and tadpoles and tiny fish could be seen darting between the rocks and mud. But these things he did not see today, so entranced by the voice drifting up from the river, he had to discover the source. As he edged closer to the voice, he could detect a very sweet-smelling aroma. The singing stopped. Amidst a cloud of smoke, emerged an old lady. Bongani had heard of people called Sangomas. He had in fact met one of them when he was much younger. Uncle Sipo had been stricken with a mysterious illness. His brother Sidney had played a dutiful role and searched high and low for a reputable witch doctor. All the family, most importantly Sipo himself, were convinced that his life had taken a turn for the better. In fact, come to think of it, ever since father had left for the mines in Johannesburg, Uncle Sidney's assistance had been invaluable. Let me help you, said the stranger, and she stretched out one of her hands so that Bongani could reach the rock near the cave. I've been waiting for you, she smiled broadly, displaying her toothless gums. Bongani, hesitant at first, grabbed her hand and leapt onto the granite rock. He shyly followed her to the cave opening where she was cooking a sweet-smelling stew. So this is what he had smelled. Suddenly he was ravenous. She dished up two bowls of the thick cassava stew. Eat! Bongani hungrily took his bowl and gobbled down the food. Good, she said, watching the boy with an approving eye. Mmm, thank you, he muttered, almost ashamed at having gulped down the sweet, hot food. Together they washed the bowls and spoons in the river. The rest will do for tomorrow, she muttered to herself. Without a word, she then took a small drum from inside the cave. With a soft drum beat she began humming and singing. Bulgani thought the tune sounded familiar and he found himself joining in a little. Then more and more. The song was about life and the river. Although he didn't understand the words, he found it wistful and beautiful, too. It made him miss his cousins, Busi and Sapiwe, and all of a sudden, he burst into torrents of tears. Matsukotsi, as she called herself, continued singing soothing words. Bongani was a bit shocked at himself for crying in front of this lady, but actually felt better afterwards. Wandering up the hillside from the river, he knew something special had happened. What was it exactly? Who was this woman? And why hadn't she been surprised to see him? He felt glad to have met her and eaten that lovely food. An elated feeling filled him now. What an adventure! And it was his secret. Bongani's ma was busy helping other women the following week taking their wares around the country in their old Baki to village shops, for instance. He was very proud of his Ma who was involved in training other women from around the homesteads to develop their handiwork and get out of the more Bongani was so busy with household chores and looking after younger siblings during this period that the only time he had chance to think about Matsu was at night, lying awake plagued by heat and mosquitoes. Had he just dreamt it all? It all seemed so far away as though none of it ever happened. It wasn't until a month later that Bongani was drawn again to the old lady for the last time. The events leading to the final encounter with Matsukozi were dire indeed. Heavy rains fell for three continuous weeks, the kind of rain the region had not experienced in the last decade. Mealy plantations, pineapple fields and farming areas were all affected, many ruined. It was times like these that drew the communities together. Several emergency meetings were held at the church for the villagers. The intense heat that followed the flooding was already drying up the rivers and swamp areas, but the damage remained evident. Rain had washed nutrients away from the rich earth and as for the plants and roots that had that had been uprooted, what was to be done? Visits to the river where Bongani had first encountered his unusual friend were no longer peaceful, uninterrupted interludes from the bustle of the kraal. The river bank was hardly recognizable. Each evening as the sun set, so gathered the villagers. Shimmering lights, candles were held as people were praying. Such a sight was nothing new to Bongani. However, he couldn't help wondering what Motokotsi had been up to. A little perturbed he was to think of how intolerant these people might be of her. Wasn't it enough that they had claimed this spot as their sacred space? Bongani felt hot with annoyance. More than anything, he was starting to notice how he actually missed his new friend. Her way of communicating through music surpassed anything he had ever experienced. Now that he thought of it, few spoken words had been shared between them. Yet they understood each other. Who else had he ever felt so comfortable with, within such a short time? Bongani didn't feel ready to tell any of his family about it. He wasn't so sure that they would approve. After all, no one fools around with a Sangoma. Somehow, he just didn't care. It was far too thrilling the last thing he wanted to do was place their friendship in jeopardy by telling the others about it. And so it was. One fine starry evening that he accompanied a great many fellow villagers down to the riverbank. Rain hadn't fallen for a fourth night and the heat had subsided too, for which the village dwellers were greatly thankful. It seemed that the worst was indeed over. What's more, The great rift which had existed between neighbouring villages over the past five years seemed to have dissolved through this common hardship. Bongani proudly and quietly believed that Matsukotsi's magic had somehow woven itself into the lives of the villagers. Tonight was being marked by special prayers of gratitude. Bongani stood with his sister Tandi and Uncle Sidney. The main ceremony was being undertaken by a small group of dedicated community leaders. Singing, drumming and dancing were to follow the main prayers. Women and men alike wore special garments for the occasion. It was during the singing that Bongani suddenly noticed a familiar figure amongst the village crowd. Could it be? Matsukozi dressed like the others and wearing a lilac shawl? How well she blended into the crowd. Borgani felt a warm glow inside as she smiled at him with the recognition. He drew away from his relatives who seemed caught up in the activity. Within seconds, Koti slipped away into the shadows. Suddenly he thought to himself, Surely she wasn't afraid that he would give her away? And what exactly did she have to hide, he wondered. One of the leaders of the group repeated thanks for the restoration of calm to the elements of nature. Joyful shouts followed, and the crowd burst into songs of praise. Bongani moved unnoticed from the crowd, caught up in his own fervor. As he crept closer to a nearby glen of pines, he heard a hoarse whisper. Over here! All at once, there she was, her figure, drenched in the moonlight. Matakoti smiled, showing off her toothless gums in the extraordinary light which now surrounded them both. Bongani immediately felt at ease. Go, my son, go where you belong. Teach those who don't know how to sing. You no longer need me. But, protested Bongani, he felt stunned as he turned and vanished forever. The following year, Bongani joined his cousins at school. He felt excited and ready to learn all he could. He never told his secret. Much, of course, his magic words stuck with him his whole life. The memory of their shared experience at the river brought him much comfort. In times of hardship, he felt privileged to have experienced the healing power of music with Matsukotsi, as brief as it was. In fact, this led him on a personal exploration of the music traditions in the communities around him. And so it was, years later, as a trained choir master, that Bongani began spreading Ubuntu through music in and around the villages, schools, and further afield. And
0: there'll be more Sharp Sharp, the children's programme tomorrow. There'll also be more otherwise. Incidentally, if you were listening earlier to uh, Bolivia Jeremiah, you'll find her on Facebook and she'll be telling us about her project, about uh, what people can, what uh, young women can do about rape. It's uh, Facebook Bolivia. Jeremiah. Thanks very much the team. That's Hazel McRusenny and Derek Fordyce. I'm Nancy Richards. Just up next, a little late. It's time for the news at two with Utsile Saku.